Hello, I'm Robin. And I'm Brian. Uh, it's Professor Brian Cox uh, there. Uh, we did a tour around Australia. An honorary and honorary Dr. Robin Ince. Honorary doctorate. Three times. No, double honorary doctorate, I think I am now. Dr. Dr. Ince. I'm Dr. Dr. Ince, which makes me eligible for an enormous number of guest appearances in, in Don't Even Tell Me About, because I know about that terrible sensation. You've had a feeling like some Venetian blinds, but we'll deal with that later on. Uh, <laughs> we did a series of Q&As as uh, we travelled around Australia and the UK, and here is one of those Q&As. Uh, that we did on that tour. Uh, you, there will be a whole series of these, but here is a particular Q&A from the 2016 tour. You just couldn't finish. You couldn't finish in a sharp, snappy and professional way. That sentence went on and on and on. You and know why? On. I've got a bit of onion uh, stuck in my braces and it, I was just trying to shift it while talking. It's still there. Look. <laughs> it's, you know, it's horrible, isn't it? People are glad this isn't television. Brian said they've been working together and coming up with strange and wonderful ideas and then proving them through equations and experiment for many years. So please welcome Brian Cox and Jeff Forshaw. That was... Hiya. Um, is the world, this is from Carl Williams, is the world the same weight today as it was when it was first formed? Who wants to open on that? Yeah. <laughs> there are, there are, there are hang three answers. Hang on, Jeff's starting. I was going to just say there are three answers to well, don't that. Me, I don't want to do any of them. There's, there's, there's yes, no, and the same, and all three are right. Yeah, okay. Jeff, would you like to enlarge on that, which is roughly how your writing work goes with him as well? <laughs> <laughs> I'll give yes, no, and maybe. You fill in the rest of the chapter, Jeff. Jeff so, will now explain why all three yeah. of those are correct. So if, yeah, if, if we're counting the weight in particles, stuff that we definitely know exists, like protons and dark matter particles, which we know exist, and if we count up the total, then that amount has stayed the same, at least within the, our visible universe. I mean, it, it, it's unclear what's happening outside, but that's, that, that stayed the same. Can I just right. stop you there and say, I love, I love Jeff's turn of phrase sometimes. He goes, it's unclear what's happening outside of our observable universe. It's a unclear. caveat. You need to, you need, you need to make caveats. <laughs> you, well, you can never be too sure, can you? And that is typical <laughs> physics. How's physics going? Well, we can't but be too sure. I, Einstein says that we should also include um, energy when we work, tally up the total mass of something. So we should include the photons or the particles of light and they get redshifted as the universe expands. So their energy decreases. Each photon, each particle of light, loses or reduces its energy, and that means that their contribution decreases. So if you include all the matter in the, all the dark matter and all of that stuff, all the protons and the photons, then the total is decreasing. But if you increase, if you include the dark energy, which is driving the expansion of the universe. Now, we, we don't know what that is. Right? We don't know if it's made of particles. It might not really be appropriate to talk about its mass in that sense, but we can talk about its gravitational effect, which means that we might think about it as contributing to mass. And if we include that, then as the universe gets bigger, the dark energy contribution increases. So that's the sense in which... So, Brian said that the mass could be, if we include dark energy, it increases. If we don't, it decreases. And if we exclude the photons, then it stays the same. So 
anything goes wrong. Really. <laughs> Happy with you, answer, Carl? <laughs> I should say very briefly, dark energy, it's a very important uh, component of the universe now. Before the 1990s, late 1990s, we didn't know it existed. Um, it was discovered by two groups independently. And the measurement was, as I mentioned very briefly, that you can you can f measure how far something is away if you know the brightness of it. And there are very particular kind of supernova explosions. And a very particular, they're called type 1A supernova that we know the brightness of. So these two groups, um, one in Australia, one in, the, in America, were measuring the redshift, the expansion rate of the universe using these supernova. And they found, to everybody's surprise, that the universe is accelerating in its expansion and has been doing so for the last, what is it, seven billion years, I think. So, um, so that, that, that's the measurement. And then so, so using the Friedman equation I mentioned earlier, you can say how much energy do we need to drive such an accelerating expansion? And we find that um, today it's of order 70% of the energy density of the universe, which I counted in my five hydrogen atoms per cubic meter. It should be said that you made some comment before about uh, the, the, somebody made the comment, it might have been you actually, about the, 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 the child who, who asked the vicious question about dark energy. About dark energy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, quite a cutting question, that, to say that, uh, if you remember the question that about, uh, isn't dark energy just a, 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 a sort of figment of your imagination? You've made it up in order to bury your ignorance, right, or something like that. But it, it's not that ridiculous. It was introduced by Einstein in 1915. It is actually something which is anticipated. So it's the energy of empty space. And until uh, things like this that Brian just showed, people didn't know that there was any energy to empty space and we didn't really understand how to calculate it because every time we've tried to calculate it, we've got ridiculous answers. That's when particle physics, physicists try to calculate it. They just get nonsense. So we just pretended it's not there. But it was always there. It was always something from 1915 that sat in the equations and we just preferred to put it equal to zero. And it turns out that it's not zero, it's something else. And it could be that we'll never really learn what it actually is. It will just always be the energy of the vacuum, the energy of empty space. Well, that's what it is. That's dark energy. And that's, a, that's an understanding. It's not. I mean, it would be nice if we actually could say something more about it, but maybe we'll never be able to say anything more than that. It's quite possible. This is from Var Catherine Elliott. This is from Beth, who's 13. And she said, if a planet in an alternative universe was looking through a telescope now, how many years ago would they see us? You can kind of explain if a the planet ideas. So I think that if a planet in an alternative universe was looking through a telescope now, how many years ago would they see us? But I think you can... Oh, so, so the... So, so it, it depends how far it is away. So, so this light, light travels... Um, well one light year in a year, which is kind of a... Um, so the nearest star, uh, Proxima Centauri, is just under four light years away. So if there, plan there is a planet around Proxima Centauri, and it's a, a, it was recently announced, actually, the discovery, and it's a rocky planet as well, so it's a potentially Earth-like planet. So the telescopes on that planet, the astronomers, if there are astronomers on that planet, it'd be wonderful, because we could just about imagine going there. It is not too far away. Um, then they would be seen as four years in the past. So when you look to the distant planet, the edge of the universe, if someone's looking back on us from, from the, the most distant planet we could possibly see, which is almost 13.8 billion 
light years away, then they wouldn't see us, of course, because we've only been here for about 4.5 billion years. So you exceed that distance, and you don't see the solar system because it wasn't there. Right, we'll go straight for the next book, which is uh, my eight-year-old son asked tonight, what can I see looking out of a black hole? And it has a codicil here. Can Brian give him an answer he would understand? <laughs> well, Jeff can have a go to start with. <laughs> if, you're in, if, you're, if you're inside, a black hole is defined really by the fact that there is a shell surrounding it. It's, it, it's, it's some material that's compressed so compactly in space that there is a kind of a, a shell around it. Right? It doesn't really exist, this shell. It's just an, it's, it's a sphere that's around it. And outside of that sphere, right, then uh, uh, um, it's possible, for example, for light to escape. But inside, if you shine a torch, the light can never, it'll be bent back round. It'll, it, the gravity pull, the gravity of the dense material will be so strong, just, as, just like if you throw a ball in the air and it drops back to the earth, the light will just get bent back and will not be able to escape out of the... And uh, even radial, even if you shone it perfectly, uh, you'd, you'd never be able to make the light go out. In, inside the black hole, though, it's... it's well, I mean, I'm going to say it's, 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 there's nothing particularly special about it except the gravitational field is so great that it would be inclined to pull things apart, right? Uh, um, but there's nothing... I mean, you'd see all the material that's falling in, is what you would see, if you were inside of a black hole. So if there's stuff falling in, you'll see that stuff falling into the black hole. But there's, apart from that, and you'll be... Unless you've got some pretty powerful rockets, that, you know, you'll pretty be... You, you, I mean, you, you will end up in the middle of the black hole, squashed with all the other stuff. But you could delay it a little bit by having a big jetpack on. But... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so in your forlorn attempt, and then you'll see this stuff coming in. It, there's there's a very famous um, effect as you fall in, though. So if you imagine an astronaut falling across this shell, the event horizon, it's called, then um, as, 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 as the astronaut approaches it, to someone watching them fall in, the astronaut's time slows down, slows down, slows down, so their watch ticks slower and slower. So, so you actually don't ever see the astronaut fall in. You see them uh, redshifted. You see them just fade and go redder as they, as they fall in, and their time yeah, goes more slowly. It's bizarre, really, because but, from the point of view of somebody outside, they see that. And from the point of view of somebody inside, they see, them, they see the well, person fall through. Yeah, I was going to say, so there, there was John Wheeler, who was um, a very famous physicist, who was actually Richard Feynman's um, PhD supervisor, um, I think, was he? Was it Hans yeah. Bethe? No, John Wheeler. Um, so he said that, uh, this is the way that he'd like to die because from the astronaut's perspective, falling into the black hole, their time ticks at the normal rate. This is a foundation of relativity. Your time always passes at one second per second for you. So that means that the time outside speeds up. And so in principle, you can watch the entire future history of the universe. In, in practice, you can, it all gets redshifted away. But, but, but in principle, you can, because time speeds up outside relative to you. So you see everything go faster and faster. So he said that's the way. He'd like to be thrown into a black hole so he could watch the whole, the whole universe. And then, of course, he'd get... The, the, the word that the, what Jeff said is called spaghettification. So he'd get spaghettified eventually as he went down towards the singularity. And um, it would all happen, you know, almost instantly. You know, it happened over 10 minutes or something for him, for the astronaut falling in. 
if you'd see the time speed of it, sorry. Right, I'm going to do it. We'll see if we can do a couple more really rapidly. Uh, this is from uh, Jed, who's age 11. Is it possible to have two planets orbiting around each other, binary orbit, whilst orbiting a star? Yeah, I don't know of any, but yes. But there are star systems, so it's the same thing really, but with more mass in the star. There are star systems, uh, the Alpha Centauri system actually. So it's so Proxima Centauri is loosely bound to them. There are two other stars, Alpha Centauri A and Alpha Centauri B, and there are planets around at least two of those stars. So you have, you have stars orbiting around each other with planets orbiting around the stars, and it's quite common. You happy with that answer, Jeff? Yeah. Okay, good. The, um, <laughs> Do you really believe there was nothing before the Big Bang? Oh, well, I mean, this... Who said that I believed that in the first... The implication of the question is that I believed it well, ever. I know, I, I did overly right. dramatise that. Yeah, What's yeah, the right. question? Yeah. Do, do you uh, believe uh, there was nothing before the Big Bang? We, 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 we should be really clear. Nobody has a clue what happened before the Big Bang, and it doesn't make any sense. It's a stupid question. It obviously is. <laughs> so, what... Uh, he's going to talk about what happened before the Big Bang, <laughs> right? You see the jazz in the next, hands. In the though, next, <laughs> next bit of the, the, but it's a slate of hand. So you, it, it, he's, he's, he's going to tell you what happened. So the Big Bang, if we talk about when all the material that makes this universe burst forth, we can talk about what happened before then, and that's what Brian's going to talk about. But you could then say, well, where did that stuff come from? That what happened before the thing that you've just told me about? You can always ask that question, and it's not clear if... I mean, if the universe... An easy way out is if the universe is infinitely old. So there was always a before. Um, the idea that there was a day before without a, 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 a yesterday is something that's very difficult to understand within the context of cause and effect. It's like, well, what caused that? Right? And physics is... You know, it's, not, it's, it's not answering that. It's, it's not going to ever deliver a, the, the, a, a... I mean, we, I think, slightly disagree. But I, I, think, I don't think it could ever uh, um, answer a question. That you're always going to be left with wondering, well, where, where did that thing come from? Right? There's always going to be something like that. We, have, we, have we can get ever closer to it, but we can never really... We, we have, I would say very quickly, we, we, have long, we have long arguments about this late into the night, and if there are any philosophers in the audience, they might have a better answer than me. But I contend that if the universe is infinite in time, so it's always been there, then um, you don't have to answer, address the question, uh, what caused it, whereas uh, Jeff's not so sure. Any philosophers want to pitch in? You're welcome. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we don't agree. The, the wonderful thing, that, uh, uh, that, let me just say one thing more about this, this before the Big Bang. So the Big Bang bursts forward, and it kind of conjures up the image that everything in the universe came from a tiny little region. But we're going to kind of see that, in fact, I mean, that's wrong, that way of thinking about things. And that there could, you know, we could be one tiny little bit of a much bigger, infinitely large thing. So the, the Big Bang actually took place everywhere all at the same time in an infinite space. So it's not... It didn't burst out of a seed. Everything that's in this universe that we see, everything, all the galaxies, all the stars, they came out of something that was smaller than the size of a proton. Right? But there was something outside that proton at the time when it was a proton-sized thing. Right? There, was, there was stuff everywhere else. And that's all exploded out and made... You know, it, that's, and we don't know how far that goes on in, in, in every direction. And as Brian's going to say, that it could be, could be infinitely big. Even at the time of the Big Bang, it could have been infinitely big. This is, we've got loads of great questions. I will ask the, the uh, first question is, uh, 
Emily, age nine, if everything has a gravitational force, how come apples don't float towards us? Ah, well, because the gravitational force between you and an apple is very, very tiny, but it's still there. And in fact, the, the, you remember, you, you won't remember, but on the, you might do, on, when I pointed out Newton's gravitational constant um, on, the, on the equation, it was in there. Um, that was um, first measured. That, that's the, the strength of the gravitational force. And it was first measured in 1799 or thereabouts. So the, just the end of the 1700s. Because you've essentially got to do something like you suggest. You've got to measure the gravitational force between two things that you know the mass of. And it was done, it was, one way to do it was that there was a, a mountain called Shahelian in I think it's in the Lake District. It might be, I think it's there. But anyway, the, the Royal Society paid for it to be surveyed so that they could estimate its mass. And then someone went and got a pendulum and put it next to it and measured the deflection of the pendulum caused by the mountain. And it's a tiny, tiny amount. And that was a way of, of measuring the strength of gravity. And the other way was by Henry Cavendish in uh, his house, in his front room in Clapham, overlooking Clapham Common. And he built this huge device with big brass balls um, on, on, a, on a sort of a torsion mechanism that would twist when you brought some other balls into it. And, and he measured the strength of gravity like that. And he was, and he was so de dedicated to this experiment that he, he built a, a whole sort of enclosure in his drawing room overlooking Clapham Common and put some little holes in it and, and, and worked it all automatically so he wouldn't move, move the air and make air currents. We would twist it. And at the end, so they both measured it. And at the end, um, the, the guy did, did the mountain thing. He was very annoyed that Cavendish had done it. He didn't like Cavendish's measurement. And he said... Um, he said something like, um, I think my uh, measurement using the mountain is significantly more accurate than the man with the small balls. <laughs> 1799. It was great. Sort of. So that's how it was done. So it's very difficult, but you can do it. Uh, right, this is from uh, uh, Roman Sahota, who says, in Interstellar, which is a film we watched together on a plane from Chicago to L.A. Uh, in, uh, which that's that, you're a part of the liberal media elite. Yep, you? There you go. certainly it's are. Similar. Isn't it grand? Anyway, so um, <laughs> in Interstellar, the main actor spent a minute on one planet, which equated to 12 years on Earth. Could this be accurate? Uh, very accurate. It's absolutely the case. So um, the stronger the gravitational field that you're in, so now, um, so, so it's actually true that the, the, the people here on the ground are aging slightly slower than the people in the balcony. <laughs> Uh, because, because the gravitational field is a little bit weaker up there, and, and time is slowed down in a gravitational field. So the closer you get to a big mass, the, the slower time passes. And it's a real effect. It's a, so, so you age more slowly when you're on the surface of a planet than you do when you're at high altitude. You've really reminded them of the class division between those who could afford the expensive seats <laughs> and those rapidly aging people up there. The... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, what do you, this is just, uh, uh, Roberta Ney just wants to say, what don't you know that you wish you did? Um, I would love to know if there is life in the solar system beyond Earth or on some of the nearby planets around distant stars, because I'd love to know the, the, how lucky we are to be here. I, I'd like to know whether, whether the, the, the origin of life, the emergence of life is, is almost 
sort of forced if you get the right conditions or we were lucky even for life to get going and I would also like I'd obviously love to know if there are any other civilizations in the galaxy and we do look um, we look with radio telescopes and we've seen no sign of any uh, the uh, next question is uh, would colors this is from uh, Jen Rund uh, would colors look the same on a planet planet with a different colored sun uh, See, I thought you'd do so that, which is why I chose no. that one. Um, well, I mean, so the colours would be the same. That's why, but maybe that's sort of semantics, you know. But but it, but it's true that if you, you you know you know this actually, if you go into let's say you illuminate a room with red light, then then you you don't see green because there's no green light to be reflected back to you. So so if you if you had a very red sun, then with with a very you know low components of blue and green light. Then, then you wouldn't see the colours blue and green because they're reflected light. Um, Steph Woods would like to know, I think you're going to deal with this, how do galaxies get their shape? You're going to be covering that a little bit. Not how they get their shape. This is a really interesting question, that. Because um, it used to be thought that they sort of evolve. So there are, there are spiral galaxies and you see more sort of globular galaxies. But that's now been shown not to be true. Um, so it depends. It, it depends on things like how fast they're spinning. So, so, so the faster they spin the flatter they can get. But also, usually, most of the shapes are caused by interactions with other galaxies. So you get collisions between galaxies. You tend to get these sort of rather more spherical things. So it's, it's, it's their history, their formation history, and their interaction history. Um, this one's from the Harry Potter. Uh, this is actually, though, for his wife, Kate. Uh, what, and a few people have asked this, so I'm sorry to many. What, what is the universe expanding into? Is it... Brilliant question, because I suppose our image of the Big Bang is that it's an explosion that happens in, a, in the, the universal box, as it were, pre-existing space, and all the galaxies get thrown out. But that's not the way to think about it. The, as I sort of mentioned, the, the Einstein's theory tells us that space just stretches or warps in the presence of mass. So that means that, that space is, is, is everything. It literally, when you say space is expanding, you mean this arena is expanding. It's one of the few um, pieces of jargon that's useful. It's called a metric expansion, which really means that the distance between things gets bigger. And that, that's so, so, so space itself stretches. So you don't think of uh, the universe expanding into a pre-existing space because it is the space that's stretching. Uh, which, so is, which is not very... I mean, the thing is, it's, not the, it's very hard to picture that. So it's not the clearest explanation, but it's true. <laughs> so, 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 I've just realised I've got a piece of red tape stuck on my foot. There Let me get that. <laughs> no, 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 I can't have you falling. So, um, <laughs> Serena... Maybe it only looked red because it was travelling away from us. Anyway, so the... Uh, this is... You've learned something. This is... Uh, um, <laughs> you remember the... <laughs> That was one of my. We, we did it. We once did a sketch which was doing a kind of Bernard Manning uh, 1970s club joke. Going anyway, I'm going to do some blue jokes now, but they're only blue because they're travelling towards you. Anyway, Radio no, no, Four no, cut quite a lot. Of those my mother-in-law is so fat; she's red-shifted. Yeah. Which is it? <laughs> well, no, I can't believe I did that. I'm not saying that. <laughs> Not saying my Bird wife's non-Euclidean. Anyway, so um, Serena would like to know, uh, have you heard of the elevator to the stars? Uh, hashtag Thoth, Thoth, hashtag Algonquin Radio Observatory. The, ele so, so the idea was that, is, is that the old the idea that you, would, you, would, you could build a, 
the, the idea was you could imagine getting an asteroid in orbit or something like that, that you put in geostationary orbits above the Earth where the communication satellites are. So it always stays in the same place above the ground. And you basically attach a, a, a rope to it and you can winch things up into orbit. And the, the problem is that the strength of the material, one of the key problems. And, uh, and so people have been speculating again whether you could imagine that kind of space elevator technology with these new materials, very strong materials, graphene and these sort of carbon nanotubes and things. But as far as I'm aware, it's a, so it's, it's a big, the problem is you've got so much mass in this thing that you, you've still got to get the, it's, it's like launching a very heavy spacecraft into orbit. So I think they don't quite work, but the, 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 the idea was always that you could imagine doing that if you had a strong enough and light enough material. So, so I think that's, a, and we, uh, this is nice, could Brian explain the origin of corduroy and why as we passage through time, it becomes more attractive to men? <laughs> 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 and all, which is, uh, actually, I've got one more, because I know we'd, we'd read, but um, Angela Marriott as well would like to know, is it true that when you're in space, no one can hear you scream? Yeah. I think that's one of the most famous... Yeah. Brilliant, I'm glad that was a short because one. <laughs> uh... Thanks for listening. Uh, all episodes are at cosmicshambles.com slash Q-N-A. You sort of said that like one of those DJs then, in Cosmic Shambles. There we go. Thanks very much for watching. That was uh, another uh, of the episodes of the Cosmic Shambles. And uh, cosmicshambles.com. There, that's, that's a DJ, isn't it? Yeah. Just, well, now, as if you're always sucking something slightly out of your tooth there. Just got something stuck in. There we are. Um, and now a little bit of status quo. Yeah, this is uh, down, down, deeper and down. Um, so, cosmicshambles.com slash Brian Cox QNA. And uh, for more podcasts, uh, documentaries, and all manner of things, check out cosmicshambles.com. And information about tickets for the Arena Tour in the UK in May, uh, you can get those at briancoxlive.co.uk. And that should also soon have some information uh, about dates in Norway as well. Who'd have, thought, that, who'd have thought that one of the most successful rock and roll bands in recent history was. It had a Latin name. Who'd have thought that? I know it's good, isn't it? It's nice to see the rise of Latin. Yeah. You didn't, did you? D Room should be more Esperanto-ish. It is Latin, D Room. Oh, is it? Hmm. For what? A small twig. D Room. Thanks for listening. I enjoyed touring with Professor Brian Cox in Australia so much last August that I am going to be back in Australia and also adding New Zealand, Wellington, Christchurch and Auckland. And I'm bringing along with me Helen Chersky, Matt Parker, Lucy Green and Josie Long and a whole host of musicians and comedians for our Cosmic Shambles live tour. If you want to know more about that, go to cosmicshambleslive.com or just cosmicshambles.com. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.